The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm going to be your host solo this week. Anthony Curry is in Brooklyn. In this week's edition, we'll be discussing the latest European city to court the financial industry, dealing with the impact of Brexit, and also more than 100 companies in the United States that have filed a legal brief against President Trump's immigration plans. But first, we're going to turn to another one of Trump's initiatives, the scaling back of the Dodd-Frank Act. Joining us on the line from Washington, D.C. and Brooklyn are columnists Gina Chan and Anthony Curry. Last week, President Donald Trump signed some executive orders basically looking to to tinker with the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act. And everyone was kind of saying, like, this is this is going to be crazy. He's going to try and repeal it. He's going to give banks and investment banks, you know, kind of free reign. Gina, you took a look at this. What exactly is going on here? What did he sign and what's to be expected going forward? Yeah, well, with a lot of President Trump's initiatives, what he says and the exaggerations about uh, what he's going to do sort of outpace what is actually has been done. So he did sign an executive order, but instead of really repealing Dodd-Frank or even changing any of it, it really just calls on the Treasury Secretary to consult with the heads of the other regulatory agencies to figure out what rules promote or inhibit certain core principles. And those are pretty basic, like promoting economic growth and ensuring that Americans can accumulate wealth and and that sort of thing. And then the Treasury Secretary, who I should say also his nominee, Steve Mnuchin, has not actually even been confirmed by the Senate yet, so he's not even in that post. But the secretary is supposed to put together a report within 120 days to the president. So that's really about it. I mean, it definitely starts the ball in terms of people looking at various ways to, to change Dodd-Frank, but it, it's really way too much to say it, it repeals it or changes it in any significant way. So both of you, I think, have been writing about the subject. And the argument is that, you know, Dodd-Frank could maybe use some tweaking around the edges, that there there is this um, notion that not everything that's going, that, that there could be some change and that that might be a good thing. What, what are some of the things that, that you think we can expect and that we can see that, you know, maybe could happen and or, or maybe not? Or is it just going to get kind of in this quagmire of, of congr- you know, Congress trying to look at this? I think it will stop short of having any sort of major changes, but you could definitely see some tweaks. And one thing that people actually on both sides of the aisle are in broad agreement about is regulatory relief for sort of medium and smaller banks that really Dodd-Frank wasn't meant to, to capture them. They've been hurt by a lot of these compliance costs. The community banking lobby here says it's driven a lot of their members out of business. So that's one area. Um, you could also see tweaks to the Volcker rule where even the Federal Reserve 
put out a report late last year that talked about how it had affected liquidity in the corporate bond market um, and that that was definitely a concern. So that's also something that could be amended. But in terms of any sort of big wholesale changes, it's, it's sort of hard to see, especially because, frankly, the banks have had, you know, more than five years. Let's see, it's going on seven years now since Dodd-Frank was passed, where they've already gotten used to a lot of these changes and, and changed their whole sort of structures and, and different units to comply. So it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, a lot of wholesale changes based on uh, everything that's already been done to, to adhere to the law. So, Anthony, you wrote last week about how the Dodd-Frank Act hasn't exactly been terrible for the financial community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the banks have been doing, you know, in the past seven years? Well, yeah, I mean, it, they've done well from certain perspectives. I think it's just worth bearing in mind when thinking about Dodd-Frank that you know, a lot of bipartisan support is there for some changes, you know, in, increasing the size of assets that banks need to have from 50 to 100 billion before they get labelled as, as systemically important has been out there for, for a while. Even Barney Frank, one of the co-sponsors of, of the Dodd-Frank bill, thinks certain things should be changed. What worries me about the edict from Trump is that a lot of what he's put in there is, is subjective. Uh, so as much as it doesn't really say much, you can also read a lot into what they've said about while well, increasing wealth. I mean, you, you know, that's the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as it were. But you know, his his top economic advisor at the moment, Gary Cohn, is of course the former number two from Goldman Sachs up until last month. And you know, he, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal last week, and other interviews he's done. Uh, and also, also, you know, he was the one who basically drafted the the uh, executive order last week and handed it to, to Trump to sign. He's going on about how well, you know um, you've, we've got to make sure that uh, that America's banks can and will and should be internationally competitive, and they already are. I mean, you just got to look at how well investment banks have been doing uh, from the American perspective versus their global rivals um, when it comes to investment banking fees, for example, the M and A loans. Uh, debt underwriting, selling new stock, they occupy the top five positions overall. When it comes to fixed income trading, which is the biggest single revenue producer on Wall Street, even after all these worries that everyone's had about lack of liquidity uh, that, G uh, that Gina mentioned, the four of the top five are American banks. So there, there's no diminution of America's ability to dominate the world in investment banking. In fact, they've gotten bigger. But I mean, that, that's not the only thing that Cohen went on about. He said, look, you know, we've got to make sure that banks lend more. One of the biggest problems we've got is that banks aren't lending enough. And you can look at some figures and find that. I was just looking at them again this morning. We were looking at what Dan Loeb, the hedge fund manager, has been saying. He thinks banks are way undervalued at the moment. And I just looking at some figures for lending. And, and yeah, JP Morgan has lent out only 65% of its deposits, and that sounds a very low number. The in entire investment, the entire banking world in the U.S. has lent out what 79% of, of deposits, and that even sounds low. But you know, if you look at another number, last year banks increased their commercial, industrial, and consumer loans by more than seven percent. And you know, when you've got GDP growing at 1.6%, that's a pretty big growth. And J.P. Morgan's consumer bank is growing at 14%. I mean, these banks are doing so well on lending. It's just they're lending to people who have got decent credit ratings and therefore don't pay huge fees. So bank earnings aren't quite so good. I think that's basically what they're bleating about. If bank earnings aren't so good, executives can't get paid as much. 
Okay, but otherwise they've been chugging along okay, and that this act hasn't really prevented them from doing business. Well, it's, it has it has on some levels. I think what the the act tried to do was stop banks making dumb loans to people who and businesses who couldn't pay them back. And look, if you look back to two thousand and eight banks suddenly realised that they were lending to people who couldn't do that. So they decided themselves to pull back. Remember that Hank Paulson, the then Treasury Secretary, also a former Goldman Sachs guy, after he gave out all the money for, for the emergency relief under TARP, said to the banks, you must now use this to lend. It's like, well, who the hell wants to lend money in the middle of a financial crisis when people can't pay their money back? Dodd-Frank just basically institutionalised that, meaning that banks now really and that that and also capital restrictions now don't really want to lend to people with lower uh, credits so that's where more money is to be made but also as we've seen time and again over the cycles subprime is also where you lose a boatload of money so yeah they can bleat about not being able to do certain businesses but it's not the end of the world thank you both for joining us today we'll be following this as it unfolds thanks thank you Great Britain's decision to leave the European Union is putting the financial industry in a quandary. But there are a lot of European cities that are competing for their business to relocate from London. That includes Amsterdam, Frankfurt, and it looks like the front runner could be Paris. Joining us is Breaking Views editor Rob Cox to discuss why the City of Lights has so much appeal. Hello, Rob. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. So... You know, there's the obvious. There's the food. There's the culture. But beyond that, I don't exactly think of Paris, you know, yeah. as like the banking hub. So wh- what did you find? A couple of things here. Uh, Paris is, as a financial center, it, it, it's making a very convincing case. So you've got this group called Europlus, which is a consortium of trade associations that's working with the local government that's trying to attract financial industry jobs from that, that may be fleeing from London after Brexit to Paris. And they, ha- they have a pretty good pitch. So to, to give you some idea, they've got this like 34-page dossier that's landed pretty much on the desks of every bank CEO in London, New York, Chicago, Beijing, Tokyo. They've met with like 100 different companies, multinationals, banks, hedge funds, fund managers. And they, they basically make the case that they are, first of all, the Paris Bourse ranks first in market cap on the continents, bigger than Europe, bigger than Germany by a good 700 billion euros in market cap. That's surprising. Well, you know, as a percentage of GDP, Paris's equity market is larger than Germany, basically because German companies, many of them are private, Mittelstein companies ah. and things like that. But there are, there are about 850 public companies companies in France. There are about 619 in Germany. The French bond market is also bigger, both in size, scope, trading, volume, all that stuff, not least because, you know, the French are probably a little looser on the fiscal front than the Germans are. Um, they are also, there's more trading over the counter uh, interest rate and foreign exchange contracts in Paris than anywhere else in continental Europe. And in terms of fund managers, there's like, I don't know, there's $3.6 trillion of client money, which is double what you'd find in Germany, the next largest, and four times what you find in Italy. So the argument they make, the Europlus folks make, is look, you can go to Germany and, or Frankfurt, and you can hang out with a bunch of bankers and Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank. But if you want to see clients, if, then you've got to come to Paris. It's the greatest concentration of potential clients, fund managers, private equity, and corporations. I mean, I think the other thing they point out is that among there are 31 French multinational companies among the 500 world leaders in their respective industries. You know, that's sort of like Vivendi, think of it in media, Sanofi and drugs, LVMH, L'Oreal and Hermes. 
compared to 28 by Europlus's count in Germany. So, so they think they have this fantastic, and they can, they do have, they are a bigger financial center than anyone else in that respect. Do you think that their message is, is breaking through? I mean, do you have any sense from the financial community? Look, what investment banker wouldn't like to be based in Paris versus <laughs> True. Frankfurt? But, but. Um, uh, but or, or, I mean, here's the problem. There are a couple of problems. One is people talk about the HR issues. It costs a lot more to employ someone in France than it does in the UK. That's the working hours. True. Yeah, there's bankers hours, but they're very productive. The French, you know, they may work 35 hours, but they work like hell or work well during those 35 hours. You got to give them that. There are differences, certainly with the UK, but they're actually not that big with Germany. So, so some of the HR costs may be a little bit higher in Paris, but not that much higher than they are in Frankfurt. Is it hard to fire people in Paris? Yes. Is it that much easier to fire people in Frankfurt? No. The main point of my column was to point out: yes, this is all great, but any Brexit banker thinking about moving there or moving people that people there has to really start to fret about the political situation. Yeah, well, well, that's it. That's what you were going to. That's what I wanted to yeah. get at here, too. They have an election coming up and things look a little uh, it's, choppy over there as well. well. So when when right? I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago talking to, you know, lots of CEOs and bankers and everyone was like, oh, but, you know, France will never will never elect Marine Le Pen, you know, the far right national front leader. It just won't happen. This is not in our DNA. We're you know, we're too smart for that. And I sort of just having heard the same arguments in the UK before Brexit, having heard the same arguments about Hillary Clinton's almost certain win over uh, Donald Trump, and by the way, in Colombia with the FARC treaty with uh, Italy with its constitutional reform, basically, I think they were being a little too smug, a little too self-assured about this. And what we saw in the last couple of weeks with Francois Fillon, who was the front runner for the center right, has all of a sudden been engulfed in a scandal involving his wife and children being sort of basically the, the charges they were they were being paid a lot of money for no-show work. Well, I mean, scandals. You, the, the the Parisians are and the French are kind of used to dealing with some pretty but not, <laughs> enormous scandals. Like so a how, where does this? Scandal. So this so, is, so this is big, basically. Yeah, this is this is a trust scandal. So he was the front runner who would beat Marine Le Pen in the first round and the second round. That was sort of the view. Now he's fallen. Emmanuel Macron, who's who's a young, thirty-nine-year-old former investment banker, Rothschild, uh, former finance Seems minister, perfect. but never been a politician. Yeah. Like he's never run before, so he's quite untested. Um, He's very, you know, globalist in his views. One of the, over the weekend, in fact, he suggested that American entrepreneurs and scientists who don't like the direction of the country should move to France. Um, so that's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, but the problem is he's untested. We don't know. So what you saw with this d- rapid and swift decline in the fortunes of Francois Fillon should teach everybody that just like Brexit or what happened in the U.S. in particular with the meddling by the Russians, the FBI, James Comey's, you know, decision to, to out a new Hillary Clinton investigation, which hurt her in the polls weeks going in to the election, probably cost those 77,000 votes. Who knows? But certainly the unpredictability that we saw in the Anglo-Saxon elections is not necessarily um, the French are not necessarily immune to that same right. So, so, so basically, the French don't have it all stitched up. They don't, and so if you're thinking about moving there, you can wait till after the election in May. All right. Well, merci. Uh, a bientôt. <laughs> no, de rien. I think that's what they say. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Rob, for joining us. We appreciate it. Pleasure. All right, so earlier this week, about 100-plus companies like Google, Facebook filed a legal document against 
President Trump's immigration order that he had issued. This seems to be an unusual uh, action taken by these companies. Joining us here to discuss it is columnist Rob Searin. Welcome, Rob. How are you doing, Jen? Good. You know, when I'm sitting back and looking at this, I don't think I've seen so many corporations so quickly into a new president's administration challenge basically one of his orders. And maybe we should step back and say that President Trump has basically put a temporary ban on uh, travelers and immigrants from seven predominantly Muslim countries. And that has, you know, caused a lot of havoc with a lot of people. Um, But these companies came out pretty quickly and decided to file this brief against uh, the Department of Justice. So why don't you tell us about it? I I can never recall something similar to this. So, yeah, over 100 companies. It's 126, I think. Okay, so it's it's grown. It, It continues to grow. And these are big companies too: Apple, Google, you know, Facebook, a lot of other tech companies. Levi's. It's not Levi's. Just tech it's companies, not just right? tech company. Yeah, Chobani, if you <laughs> yogurt companies. Yeah. And what they are saying is they're saying the the ruling, um, the the executive order um, banning uh, nationals from these seven countries coming to the U.S. hurts their business. And that's that's and, and they also they go into various reasons why they say like you know they're they're and they give the whole spiel about how immigrants are great for this country and how Silicon Valley depends on immigrants. And that's true. Um, it, it, a huge amount of Silicon Valley companies were started by immigrants. I think it's uh, over 40% I've heard. Um, if you look at, for instance, unicorns, so the companies that are private companies worth over a billion, that's up and coming companies, over half of them, about 46 of 90 of something companies, were established by immigrants according to a recent survey. Um, and also tech companies rely on, on immigrants just to keep the business ticking over every day. You know, they, they rely heavily on H-1B visas. Those are the uh, temporary visas for foreign workers. What the tech companies are worried about, they're worried a bit about this ban. They have, these are big companies. They have a lot of workers and coming from places like, you know, Iranian nationals. But they're more worried about a precedent being set. They're worried that, you know, this order could expand to other countries. And moreover, it's not just these these things. It's also, like I said, the H-1B visas that may be a future target. People in the administration have been talking about that. Donald Trump has mentioned the program. And it could be even just straight legal immigration through other means. Allies on Capitol Hill have been talking about introducing bills to restrict that as well. Also, one of the things that it does is that, you know, one of the bedrock things about this, the United States is its consistency and the rule of law, that you, you know that you're going to come here, you know things are going to operate pretty smoothly. And I think what's happened, at least on the onset with, with President Trump, is that there's all this uncertainty that's sort of been electrifying the air. Like, no one knows really what's going to happen on immigration and, you know, on taxes, on a number of things that could affect your, that could impact your business on a day-to-day level that, you know, and that, that, that uncertainty is, is not, that can't be good. No, it's, it's not good for Silicon Valley firms in particular, because a lot of these companies get a huge chunk of revenues from overseas. Um, a company like Microsoft, you know, a vast majority of its profits come from overseas or Cisco or all, pretty much all the big companies. And these companies are very exposed if their trade war breaks out. You know, one of the things, too, that, that came out, at least with the Super Bowl, I mean, since that's fresh in our minds, is that you had Budweiser talking about the co-founder coming from Germany to start the brewery in America. There was 82 Lumber, this, you know, making a statement against the wall. I have never really seen as much sort of political 
dialogue in TV commercials around like this event that you know typically people kind of sit back and just you know yeah you, and it's entertainment it's entertainment right like that's what the Super Bowl is so to me it's interesting that all these companies are coming out and basically starting to make a stand if these companies are worried about several things it's not just you know it's immigration it's possibility of trade wars it's also the rule of law you have to think these companies are big winners you know they make a lot of profits and the reason they are able to earn these profits is because there's certainty and there's rule of law. We know that, you know, if you make a contract, it's going to be enforced. If that question starts to be kind of questionable, you know, if contracts become questionable, that would hurt these businesses a lot. Yeah, that's, they, that's and, anti-business and in this, a lot of this, ways. And you know, this isn't something that is impossible. If you look at businesses, say, in developing countries with poor rules of law, like in Brazil or Russia, the companies traded about half the PE multiples of, of American companies, just because investors are saying, well, you know, they make a lot of money, but we aren't sure that we actually will be able to get our hands on it at the end of the day. So American companies have to be worried that, you know, if we do go down the road to becoming a banana republic, I mean, that's, that's a far step. But if, if they're worried about that, they have to fight it now. All right. Well, Rob, thank you very much for coming on our show. You're welcome. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Anthony Curry, Rob Cox, Gina Chan, and Rob Siren. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes and tune in next week for another episode of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us. 